Hello and welcome to Register, the podcast about architecture and landscape from the Kingston School of Art in London. My name is Andrew Clancy. In this episode, Ellis Woodman interviews Timothy Smith and Jonathan Taylor of Smith Taylor Architects. Ellis is director of the Architecture Foundation and is a valued thinker and writer about architecture in many forums. Jonathan Taylor and Timothy Smith are both directors of Smith Taylor Architects and both teach here in Kingston School of Art, where Timothy is also the director of the MARC course here. The practice they run together is cutting an interesting path, seeking to establish a route for what they are terming marginal classicism, a contemporary reading of the language of classical architecture through contemporary tectonics. In this interview, they and Ellis discuss their route to this and their thinking about how their work is progressing today. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Uh, so, my name is Ellis Woodman. I'm here with uh, Timothy Smith and Jonathan Taylor in my flat in the Oval. Guys, maybe you could, we could just begin by talking about your education, which I, I think you studied together. That's right, yeah. Um, well, <laughs> we, probably, we probably met on the first day of first year um, in Edinburgh College of Art. In the courtyard um, outside the um, <laughs> history lecture. <laughs> yeah. So this is early 2000s? So. This is 1999. Yeah. 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 yeah, we were probably quite hungover because Sundays <laughs> were a good evening in Edinburgh and we had history lectures at nine o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. At a, at a you know, slightly different building off the grass market, mm-hmm. and uh, you shared a flat with Andy, who I'd met in the Union Bar a couple of nights before. <laughs> so it was a sort of, hi, I'm Jono, I'm Timothy, <laughs> off we go thing. And tell me about Edinburgh College of Art. Was that, was that a, do you look back on it as a significant uh, kind of um, priming for what you're doing now? Um, Yes and no. Uh, well, no. Well, or maybe completely. Um, I mean, obviously, putting this the lecture together that we're giving uh, soon, uh, we've been sort of consolidating what's been happening and thinking about it. And I suppose looking back, that it, it looks like it's all leading somewhere. But um, uh, it was really, really nice being at the art college and in really incredible buildings and even there's a kind of 60s extension overlooking the castle that the architecture studios were in. You moved from sort of semi-basement in first year up through the stories to fifth year and and, and every year had an amazing view of the castle. And Edinburgh was an incredible city uh, which I don't think I I enjoyed thoroughly at the time. I don't think I realised quite how important it's been Mm -hmm. uh, until I left. And then the teaching was very open so, uh, I mean, in retrospect, I think that was helpful. At the time, as, as students, we thought a bit, we sometimes felt a bit sort of resentful that we weren't being, present, being presented with these sort of strong architectural philosophies and being told to sort of follow them. But in some ways, I think it was, yeah, in retrospect, it was quite liberating mm-hmm. not, not to have that sort of, so you could pretty much do whatever you wanted, couldn't you? Mm-hmm. Um, and what was the architecture that you were enthused about as a student? Uh, very. <laughs> um, I think I, I bought my first Lutchens book <laughs> when I was in, when I was thinking in the second year and found out a bit about Sewn from one of my first year tutors who I'd never heard of before. Um, but otherwise, I think it was just generally following more or less of European sort of contemporary architecture mm-hmm. Sort of mm-hmm. at, the, at the time. Um, and through publications, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. Very few of the tutors were practitioners. And there was Neil Gillespie from Reckon Hall. Mm-hmm. Ian Boyd? Yeah. Ian Boyd? Steve Boyd from Lee uh, Boyd. Boyd, Lee. Lee Boyd yeah. But mostly the course was led by full-time academics who'd practised in London through the 70s with the LCC or something like that. And, and it was coming out of Al Crocky and it was all very, very sort of super dutchy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Corbin super dutch. Yeah. So Latins didn't really fit into that. No, not at all. I mean, no, but, but, they, really. but Jono was buying this. Jono had done it. this film. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was sort of a friend of ours tried to do a pitched roof and got in an awful lot of trouble. Of course. Yeah. Why would you do a pitched roof in Scotland? Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. It's actually, yeah, quite. <laughs> um, but you were buying the interesting books I was still looking at. Yeah. 
from geography you'd looked at lunchrooms? Yes, that was it. I, I'd actually done a, a geography degree before my architecture degree, and in my final years, I started sort of looking at the kind of the architecture of empire. So, I obviously Lutchins and Herbert Baker sort of came into that, and so when I went to Edinburgh, I sort of had this memory anyway of of, of Lutchins, but it never occurred to me that's something that you might sort of replicate, or you know you wouldn't necessarily follow that sort of line in your own work. Yes, yeah. Um, just for some reason, it doesn't make sense. I mean, yeah. and did you have contact with the art students? Uh, yeah, informally. It wasn't yeah. anything yeah. that the college arranged, mm. but yeah. But quite a lot, didn't we? Yes. In first yeah. year, we were always going to parties at the yeah. painters' mm. houses mm. and things. And, and, the, and the old building there was a really, really nice, um, sedate, but sort of heavy classical building with a sculpture court in the middle. And so even from the art side, it had this uh, sort of link to tradition, really. I don't know, do the artists think it's quite an old-fashioned place to study? I think so. I think the painting course was quite traditional. Yeah. Mm. Um, sculpture wasn't. Yeah. And then there was tapestry, which was more like sort of insta- installation yeah. art, I suppose. And we got to know them well. Yeah. I mean, we, did, we didn't have workshops for architecture, but sort of down in the college bar that we'd be, we'd be sort of horse trading actually you know we never had any to offer did we but um, they never wanted anything that we did but the sculptors got access to really cheap plaster so we'd go and buy yeah, 20 yeah. kilo bags of plaster from them for a fiver a go instead of a tiny little packet for the same price in the art shop and our friends in film would get us into the edit suites so we did a couple of experimental film things in the second year yeah. so it really felt like an art school education and that, I think, has been really important to us. And tell me, you, you both kind of found your way to Copenhagen, kind of at different times, I think? No, again, at the same time. At the same time, time you, yeah. you can kind of... It was an Erasmus exchange. Okay. Which, and the college had, College of Art had quite strong links with the, what's it, College of Fine Art in Copenhagen, so... So this was your final year at Edinburgh as well, right? It was the... F- no. Beginning of the third year. Beginning of the third year. Yeah. Yeah. So it was the final year, but only for part of it. Yeah. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, and that they had, I can remember them having a slightly obscure Peter Merkley book in the library. So from going from the Corby Superduct, we mm. found a way, or certainly I'd found a way into some Swiss, Swissy stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and they had a really fantastic library, and you could take as many books out as you as you wanted. So we got there with a suitcase and, and got loads of books out from the library, and sort of set up our own little <laughs> library in our rooms. So you weren't in Copenhagen, wasn't very long, but you, it was four months, four or months something like yeah, that. Yeah. But but again, an important time. We, they took us to see, see the classic stuff, the classic mid-century stuff, and it's, it's after that that we've gone back with students to look at the Scandinavian classicism mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Done a couple of trips to Copenhagen and Stockholm, Malmo, an overnight train in between. So, yeah, looking back, we didn't see a lot of the work in these important cities that we're now interested in. Um, so, yeah, I suppose it feels on a sort of an alternative track. True. <laughs> and then you came to London Met? Yeah, I came down for my final year. I decided that um, I wasn't going to work in Edinburgh. I didn't want to stay in Edinburgh or to stay in Edinburgh uh, long enough that I might get bored of it or something. I thought I'd get out before, I, uh, before that happened. And I'd worked in Zurich for my year out and my bosses there had studied at Cooper Union and they were talking about big cities a lot and I grew up near London so I hadn't until then hadn't really thought of being in London it was more exciting to be elsewhere in a way and in Edinburgh partly it's a slightly boring thing if you get your degree after fourth year and then there's a one year diploma or part two and it felt a bit sort of provincial and everyone just stayed there because they were there and so I was looking at places like London Met and thinking, oh, Bob Harbison's there and Harrow and that's all quite interesting. But really I just wanted to be in London so I interviewed at a couple of places and, and in the end London Met was the only place that was sort of open to my situation of joining a course halfway through Yeah, and studied with Rick Nice and um, had a great time really and it was also quite nice to be uncomfortable for a year, you know, everything being new. And I think I first encountered you when you were making a model for Daniel Rossbottom. Yeah, that kind of the Yaya 
for their Yaya entry. Oh, is that possible? Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah, I was working for Robert Mull, so yeah, yeah. I finished and worked in the projects office there doing bits and pieces for them and mostly working you know, working for Robert's practice. Yeah. Um, so kind of thrown into quite an autonomous situation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's then when we, Jonathan came down and, and we started doing little projects on the side. So, Jonathan, you, 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 after Edinburgh, you... Well, I, I, for, for my final year of Edinburgh, I, I tried to go back to Copenhagen. I see. For various complicated reasons, that wasn't possible. So I ended up in Edinburgh for my diploma, which, again, was something I didn't... <laughs> like Tim, I sort of identified that I didn't really want to stay, but as it happened, it was, it was then sort of too late to, to arrange anything else. So I did stay there. Yeah. The diploma, of course... Not yeah, particularly interesting, I don't think. Mm. Um, and so then I, I then worked in Edinburgh for I think it was a bit less than a year. But um, while I was sort of putting applications into practices in London, um, and so yeah, then came down to London about a year la- year or so later. Um, and so you, these, you started, as you said, doing competitions or doing kind of. Uh, Commission projects on this? Uh, it was commission projects. Yeah. Um, we, we we attempted a little competition mm. once, and we we did yeah. with Ara. Oh yeah. Um, no, little bits and pieces would come through. Um, either the the office at London Met people would phone up and say, "Does a student want to do a cheap planning application for me?" Yeah. And uh, those would get passed on towards me. And the friends of friends thing started happening, or the neighbours of friends and and we did a few planning applications mm. and bits and pieces and uh, it's on Saturday morning so it's quite it's quite nice. So you were both working for bigger offices? Yeah. I was was sort of moonlighting on the side. Yeah. 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 I was working for Adam Richards. Um, yeah, and I was still Europe, Roberts, Roberts. So. yeah. I mean that's the thing, we ha- we, we we haven't got the sort of big office experience behind us. Mm. Um, and we did the, did those sorts of things and then um, Work dried up for us for reason, uh, reasons other than directly financial crash related ones <laughs> in 2008-9. And we'd got a slightly bigger job in Bayswater, again, the sort of interior refurb stuff. And uh, Daniel had got the job at Kingston's head of school and offered me, I'd been doing a day a week teaching at London Met, so he offered me two days a week. And that's just kind of reassuring. Um, so we thought, well, let's just let's go for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and you carried on three days a week or so at work, I think. Yeah, I think that was three. Um, yeah, Adams, they sort of, sort of cut back a bit. So it was on a three-day week there. Um, so it worked out quite well that we could then spend some time on our own projects. But and has teaching been instrumental in helping you figure out who you are as a practice? Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Kind of critical, critically, yeah. really. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, so uh, yeah, I'd been teaching with Richard Marks, who's <clears throat> who's now at Chipperfields. Um, and then, thank you. Um, then John, we, John and I had started teaching together about when we were setting up the practice, yeah. about the sort of same year. And it was part of us thinking, well, what do we do? What's, it sounds a little bit superficial, really, but you know, you've got a job and you. You draw it, and mm-hmm. there's all sorts of ways it can be drawn. Mm-hmm. So, well, how should how should our way be? It's, mm-hmm. it's not some kind of it's not calling here of a way. <laughs> um, and but we were really interested in lectures, and we've been to um, a few lectures, which is maybe part the answer to a different question. But on the teaching side of it, we we did a year where lectures was like a third, we described as a third tutor, and. Um, it was a year that we really got to know his work very well. Any problem in the design studio was solved by Lutchins. Every Preston study was Lutchins. And he had an answer to everything. <laughs> and um, I think it was in that year that one of our students had done a project for a facade, perhaps a year, I can't remember, and um, I mounted it in the final show and Daniel Rosbottom saw it. So that's an intriguing building. What, what is it? Thinking it was a precedent study, and it wasn't. It was her design, and it was a sort of Sonian Georgian facade, and awarded it the drawing prize that year. And thought how wonderful it was that he thought it was a precedent study, and it wasn't. 
And then we thought, okay, that's the sort of that's the indication we need that we can do classicism. There's something interested in interesting in teaching classicism next year. And then that was the first year that we we looked at classicism explicitly and taught the students the orders. Um, and our own practice perhaps followed on a year or two later. Um, and you, I mean, I think it's fair to say that you've approached approached that territory through an enthusiasm for contemporary modern architecture, for one for, for modern architecture, want of a better word. Yeah. And as you say, you, know, you you have a not knowledge of of architecture in Switzerland or in Belgium or the UK, which I suspect uh, other people working in the classical idiom today don't. Mm. How does how does the you're, so you're looking at the subjects with one end of the telescope, you know, maybe different from from theirs. I mean, how 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 does that affect the way that you approach working in the classical idiom? I suppose, um, to some extent, there's a practical a practical thing to do with the fact that most of our clients don't want <laughs> classical building. Um, so you'll see how competitions are always more. Um, expressive perhaps than built work is so far <laughs> but I think that one of our primary interests in classical architecture is the sort of it is sort of the order and kind of sort of the mass and the volume and and they order not just the orders but the ordered sort of nature of it the comp- actually the composition of it everything is deliberately composed and that sort of line of thinking can happen without a direct engagement with sort of the decoration of that architecture if you, know, if, if you don't want to or if your clients don't like it which you know, an awful lot of the time they don't um, you know, the clients come to us anyway so y- yes I suppose we're, we're, <laughs> we're approaching it I don't know, maybe slightly backwards mm. from yeah, a, sort of a, a mass and volume and slightly construction perspective mm-hmm. rather than the sort of the mythological origins of the orders, which might be the other extreme. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I guess yeah, you could say that David Chipperfield is a classicist or a crypto classicist in that he's interested mm-hmm. in themes of symmetry and yes. the expressed column and yeah. buildings of taut profile and kind of static mass that sits squarely mm-hmm. on the ground and all these sort of classical characteristics. And yet, there's always a you know, he's a kind of classicist. You know, there's a yeah. point at which you, you could push forward and use the employ the orders that that he's clearly never going to get to. Mm. Yes. Uh, so how do you gauge? I mean, yeah, you use this term marginal classicism, mm. which I, I I think is is related to that judgment mm. about about mm. how close you get to a direct working mm. with the orders. Yeah. How do you, how do you pitch it? I mean, I suppose it's it's partly a a slightly instinctive thing and it's a what kind of what feels appropriate for, for what we're doing and I don't I don't mean in a sort of spirit of the age <laughs> you know that that's that sort of argument I, I mean just in a in a sort of an architectural sense um, I mean, actually remember um, George um, Samurai Smith saying that he he felt he couldn't really think of a situation in which he would ever really use the Corinthian order because if it felt it feels sort of too kind of elaborate in a way, and so I suppose our sensibility is is, is along similar lines. I mean, well, and I think it's also going back to those the modern architecture. Mm-hmm. We like it a lot, um, the Swiss um, stuff, the Belgian, and people like Rusa Singen and, and Aru, in a way, were the, the, the prompt that we go to lectures mm-hmm. by them. And they, their reference to historical precedents, their overt reference to it, was important and new. Sort of going back to our our, um, our education, they were looking at stuff that was pre-call, for example. And that, you know, aside from Jello <laughs> sort of naughtily buying a Lutchens book when we were students, it just didn't happen. You couldn't look at something Gothic. You couldn't look at something like Renaissance. So they were looking at these things and and, and making that possible. And I suppose we thought, well, have, yeah, okay, but why, why then so translated, or why then so abstracted? And but we're quite a lot younger than them, 
so we sort of felt not sort of part of we didn't feel that was necessary for us mm-hmm. and there was something to do with their backgrounds that made that the case but still they sort of opened the doors to mm-hmm. looking at buildings which um, you know as a student we just hadn't thought were, were notable just old, old yep. stuff it was history lecture stuff rather than the work we could use in our design practice I sense you're in a way that George say Summer Smith is kind of quite comfortable mm. with working with a language that's very closely associated with the 18th century mm. you're very interested in a classical language that's renewable and, yeah. and, and that, 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 yeah. that has, a, has a sense of contemporaneity to it yeah. well that's why the sort of the sort of Scandinavian the late Scandinavian classes stroke early Scandinavian modernists I suppose are are so interesting to us because they were they were sort of I guess wrestling with, with with similar stuff you know there was a there was a language which they knew in which sort of the, the world was familiar with <laughs> I suppose they were using it under slightly different circumstances and at the same time they felt a you know they, mu- they must have felt a pressure not to simply be doing what they had done sort of 30 years before um I think that sort of tension comes out in the work. It's really, really interesting to us. But also, there's there's a kind of reserve to the work, which I think we find very interesting and sort of, I think maybe chimes with a more sort of perhaps British sensibility. <laughs> you know, it's quite a northern feels like a northern European thing. Yeah. We're a long way from Greece and Rome, sort of, um, sort of geographically, but also. Um, terms of culture I suppose and climate yeah. <laughs> and then there's Erith and McMorrin mm. people like that through the middle of the last century yeah so I suppose you know looking back looking at that looking at um, well looking at the 20th century it sort of feels like it's left us with kind of anything goes in practice and education kind of a bit like a fine art educa- education perhaps in schools teaching attempting to teach students to find an architectural voice, which is all very disconcerting. So looking to pick up a thread, which is quite a tender thread through the 20th century, but is there. And Timothy Britton Kaplan is, is, is very good on this in identifying the sheer amount of excellent architecture that was outside of architectural culture in a way. Um, that there's, still, there's, there's very imaginative work going on and practitioners of it that were um, inquisitive and curious and critical and there, and there is a very delicate thread of, of work that then uh, mm. that continues through that, that that's where we would like to think of ourselves but it also feels it is it's sort of difficult <laughs> it's difficult territory because it places a lot of a lot of pressure I think on on your judgment so if you if you choose to use, say, yeah, a direct column, um, but then you choose to omit um, you know, bits of the bits of the frieze and the entablature, so you know, what our students would call stripping back, <laughs> then yeah, that 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 can maybe sort of work on the facade, um, and it's then you know how far of, how far of this is is translated into the sort of the the interior of the building to make the, the kind of the thing a whole sort of satisfying whole there's once you start once you start not to follow the canon it places pressure to make all sorts of decisions about exactly where you're sort of positioning the sort of the style for the better word the architecture of the building and that's i think sort of difficult and and dangerous sort of dangerous because it's because it's difficult you know the Chances of failure are quite are quite high, I think. But that's what makes but, but that's a bit which well, that's a bit which we find really really interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean we were doing a small extension in Angel at the moment, and some questions are coming up in that we've got quite a classical facade, um, albeit for us quite a classical facade. For other people, it would be quite quite restrained. I think our proposal. Yeah, yeah, yeah our proposal. Sorry, yeah. And uh, and then we're sort of working on the interior of it at the moment, and it's exactly how much of uh, of that then permeates the rest of the, the rest of the building. 
is is a difficult decision. Um, and the building itself is a listed yeah. Georgian house. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so actually, I, mean, I suppose I'm describing it in a very bad way because I'm making it seem like we decide on the facade and then sort of work out the interior, which to some extent <laughs> probably do. But but the idea is to try and make all these things sort of come. To, you know, every architect has to make these things all come together into some kind of yeah. coherent composition. Yeah. Um, but in some ways, it's e- it would, would be easier if we just said, right on the inside, we are definitely going to have sort of full cornices. We're going to panel out the dados, and you know, all the architraves will be of this type. Then that's you obviously still have to exercise judgment, and it can still be successful or not. But but in a way, there's more of a there's more of a pattern to follow. And all of those judgments have monetary implications. They, they do. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and it seems to be you're what you call marginal classicism, I think it's quite close to what what Dimitri Porfirios calls vernacular classicism. Mm. You know, his, in a way, your Teddington Folly mm. project I can see as a sort of um, cousin of that, that Highgate pavilion that he made very early mm. on in his career, where mm. there's there's a um, both working with kind of brick columns and there's a sort of the facts of construction and their reading as uh, and the suggestion of a kind of classical ordering are mm. uh, kind of coexistent mm. that the, 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 your um, the myth and the and the, the, the plain fact of of, of it its builderly qualities as a sort of in a very kind of bristling relationship and now yeah you, you're obviously kind of trying in that project to work with the fact that you this is a classicism that's never going to be built out of monolithic granite yeah, monolithic marble columns or, yeah, or you know yeah. it's it's mm. it's of necessity a sort of poor architecture yeah and i mean i think if we'd had even if we'd had the budget we wouldn't have wanted to put a couple of marble columns on the pack because it would just feel slightly ridiculous yeah um if we'd had more budget perhaps we would have had curved bricks made yeah. you know it's, mm. that, it's that sort of that sort of balance, um, yeah. Well, and I think then, oh, sorry. The other, the only other thing is sort of the kind of like the emotional. Uh, I think there is sort of an emotional appeal, uh, emotional impact maybe of classical architecture, which I think is just sort of at the back of everyone's minds. You know, whether they really acknowledge it or not, these sort of slightly figurative forms, I think, do have a certain sort of power in a way. Something that's also part of our interest in it um, and it doesn't have to be very sort of elaborate to, for that to be evident I don't think no it's like the Doric door case yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 across the street yeah. the triglyphs across the street yeah some of it some of it's a kind of an intellectual positioning I suppose and of course every project has its budgetary constraints and all those sorts of things and I think with that project as Jono says if, if there was more money in it then the columns wouldn't suddenly become marble but they might be you know, made of brick specials rather than lots of mortar <laughs> but also you know, just once you become alert to this, this figurative nature of, of, of the language and it's a language which we're happy to inherit we're not interested in its origins then you know you're in a pub and there's the detailing of the back bar or the mouldings on Victorian by windows and things like that all we think communicate and we think they communicate with people who have even less of an idea of their origins than we do uh, there's something quite direct about them and we find that quite exciting and we would like uh, we would like even the smallest projects to have a certain emotional power we think by using this language that's that's what they can have the mar- so the marginal thing is is an intuitive an intuitive response I suppose to what we feel is appropriate um, in a particular moment and place and for a particular client um, but there's also sort of an intellectual mm-hmm. positioning mm-hmm. we've definitely been thinking about space I think in a different way since we started sort of teaching and and, and looking more closely at classical buildings um, mm. I think it's our, our plans have become a lot more yeah, kind of composed, I guess, um, and we're a lot less content to have a sort of slightly um, amorphous kind of space, which 
certainly when we were students, I don't think we necessarily have worried us. In fact, we might even have done it deliberately yeah. because it felt sort of yeah, modern or yeah. <laughs> cool or whatever, whatever we were looking at in the magazines at the time. Well, and it's clarified that you know we 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 don't f- feel any longer that a facade has to tell you what's happening mm. in the rooms behind. Mm-hmm. It might, but it doesn't have to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Most often, it doesn't. Yeah. Well, the whole of, sort of Bloomsbury yeah. is a is a testament to that. You know, there's all sorts of things going on behind those facades, which yeah. Yeah, I think it's, everyone knows, but it's yeah. it makes no difference at all. Yeah. Really, to and you're when, when you're in one room, it doesn't really matter what's going on in the room next door. And that, you know, you look through a Robert Adam plan, for example, and you have a series of rooms in enfilade of different um, sizes. Each of them will be decorated and lined uh, with an order that suits the room. And that's when you get those lovely skewed doorways that the, the thickness of the wall or the pochet space between a rectangular room and a, an octagonal one is where you make the transition. I bet they're also the most exciting places sometimes and I mean just just those two simple facts about the facade mm-hmm. of the room and, and you wh- where are you when you're you're on your um when you're reading a, a space or a building let's just come back focusing a bit on on this question of how your condition is different from that of Robert Adams so, you know we don't how, how is the what what are obligations of any does the 21st century impose on you as architects I mean I, I remember going to Craig Hamilton's chapel at Cullum with Adam Caruso and very admiring of the building but ultimately I think the problem he had with it if I can paraphrase it was he said you know if you're a classical architect you're necessarily interested in working with large components Mm. large stones and for Plechnik that led him to using concrete Mm -hmm. Whereas Craig, he felt, was sort of still working within a tectonic language mm. that's, that was, um, you know, would have been what, what he had available in 1830, essentially. Do you, do you feel there's a sort of, I mean, you can obviously build in ways that now that, that are very different from, from you know, even, even 50 years ago. How, how, does, how do you respond to the possibilities of construction today? I mean, Palladio built in brick yeah. and rendered it. Mm. So they quite often aren't large pieces of material in Palladio's work. It's certainly a challenge, and I mean, I suppose in a way, well, our double villa competition mm. is concrete in situ, yeah, combinations of in situ and, and precast concrete, and so we begin to think about those things through competitions because our commissions aren't yet of a scale that we can investigate it, and it's it's a question we struggle to get close enough to with our teaching. I think Craig Hamilton is working in a quite a rarefied world. You know, <laughs> not no many. Shit. You know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so so in, in, in a way, I kind of you know sort of really um, admire him as an architect, but I don't think he holds many lessons for us. You know, or probably indeed anyone. Yeah, really, <laughs> um, um, in terms of sort of construction. Um, techniques and but things, then but in his lecture he showed his own house I mean yes you know, that's true yeah, yeah. and his drawing archive which is um, you know local stone with concrete copings I mm. think for uh, to, to sort of cap the pediment mm. um, there's a slightly it feels, yeah. it feels a bit like the Zumtop yes. classicism <laughs> that you know is there to be sort of admired and, and, and maybe maybe his gravitational field pulls you yeah in a, in a useful direction, but it can also just feel so other. Yeah, I think yeah, I know he feels a great <laughs> frustration. He's not designing schools and offices. Oh, beautiful if it was. Um, and through you know, you can see some competitions he's done in Penrith Town yeah. Centre yeah. years ago and things like that. And he he's been incredibly generous to us. Mm. He showed us Cullum under construction and completion with the students. He crits for us every year. His breadth of knowledge. Actually, coming back to one of your earlier points, is from kind of a thousand BC to quite recent. I mean, quite, by quite recently, I mean maybe seventy years ago. But um, uh, seventy years is nothing in that sort of spread of time. Mm-hmm. And you know, talking about the Kodak building on Kingsway in the same sentence as as a as a, as a Greek temple, um, 
and that's that's really exciting and refreshing. And I suppose it feels like he's incredibly expert uh, uh, as as other contemporary classical architects are. But the diff- perhaps a simple difference is that we weren't practicing in the eighties. We don't come with the baggage of those battles. We're conscious. We know about them, and we're also conscious that, well, we can sit in the eagle talking to um, lots of people who, with very similar educational backgrounds to us, and say, yeah, we're really interested in classicism, and we, we'd really love the challenge of building a Palladian mansion, and they're still kind of aghast. So it is, we're, we're accidentally provocative in a way, because it's not our character. Yeah. Um, so we're quite, and it, but it is, it's quite, it's quite kind of exciting, and um and I think that's the difference between us, us and certainly a difference between us, uh, Bob Adam, um, Francis George, Ben, that you know, you, we can talk about Stephen Taylor with Francis Taylor, for example, and he, he doesn't know Stephen Taylor. So feeling like a sort of bridge and really appreciating the best in the work of, mm-hmm. of each of those kind of camps um, feels very profitable for us. And I mean, I look at kind of Craig, the example, Craig, the example of Craig's career. It's true. He's, I mean, he's he's delivered this succession of monumental temples and the bathhouse and the mausoleum mm-hmm. over, over the last kind of decade. But I think kind of, kind of prior to that, he sort of felt that he had kind of fifteen years of doing country housework, mm-hmm. where actually the creative opportunities were quite limited, mm-hmm. and. Uh, it's only really in these sort of pendant projects to the country house projects that, that he's, he's, he's found those opportunities to develop his own architectural language, I think we might say. So I, I guess that, that yeah, that, that, that there's a question there really, so as to how you see your practice developing. You know, is, is, it, is it going to be through domestic work? Is that going to provide you with the, the kind of opportunity to grow that you want? Craig says his, his clients are generally conservative. They're, they're, you know, the ones who want a classical building want a, an 18th-century mm-hmm. classical building. Mm-hmm. I, I think, well, clients clients are by their nature conservative. I think, and it's quite interesting to talk to people like Craig and Bob and and Francis George. And I suppose we thought actually maybe there's a real commercial opportunity here. Um, perhaps all clients really want this stuff. And we've kind of opened our minds to this. Maybe this is what's going to really enable our practice to take off. Um, and it hasn't, because we found that our, our London-based clients um, uh, see... Well, they don't want a classical building. They don't want something that looks old. They're spending lots of money mm. on something that looks very new. Um, and uh, so we haven't sort of found that's the case. So I think perhaps... Clients are by their nature conservative, and then when you look at sort of the competition system and getting any non-domestic work, even more so, it's, it's PQQs and all these sorts of things that we we don't stand a chance in at the moment. And it feels a little bit like a stream of work that might have come from an open first stage competition into an invited and paid second stage, which leads to a project. I mean, that was never a certainty, but. That they're very, very few and far between now. So that just doesn't. We don't do competitions thinking that we'll get a job. We do competitions to explore the questions that the domestic work doesn't allow us to mm-hmm, do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, I think you know, domestic work is is actually quite satisfying. Um, uh, you know, it's quite it's quite personal work a lot of the time. Which, and on the whole, been lucky. You know, we have mostly sort of nice clients. Um, so. So there is kind of a satisfaction to that. I mean, it would be nice if if it was a bit bigger. Um, <laughs> um, but uh, I don't feel like it's held us back creatively no, so far. No, I mean, but it is. It is. You, know, you have identified you know a problem in that it's it's a sort of a sector that's quite hard to move out of without some external thing happening. I think. I mean, it's possible that perhaps you know one of our clients might also need a building for another purpose, um, and that could be a way into another another type of work. Mm-hmm. Um, but 
think sort of direct commissions for that sort of stuff are very unlikely to come our way. Um, I mean, and the truth is that most clients don't really mind which architect does their work. You know, it's it's I think it's quite rare that an architect go uh, sorry a client goes to an architect particularly for the scale of work that we're involved in on on the basis that they want you know what Smith and Taylor does. It's because we've done a work work for one of their friends and they know us and they see that. You know, we're maybe less risk than approaching someone they don't know. <laughs> so I think that's sort of the, the the truth of it. And have you have you had are you getting yet kind of blind calls from people who want a classical house or <laughs> no. no? That's never happened. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> well, that, see, that's the thing. I think it would be fascinating. I'd really love to do an office building. Yeah. You know, just looking looking at the early twentieth century. I'm not sure. I suppose it. Feels like every young architect should dream of doing a a museum or something. That'd be the dream job or something. But I'm not so sure. I think quite interested in significant city buildings, which um, quite quiet um, police stations, all those sorts of things. Like moving out of town, there are some very significant and very bad buildings going up, and it'd be really lovely to be able to engage. Um, with questions of tectonic and um, I suppose sort of articulating the city certainly to street level and, and, and try to contribute some, some sort of something positive into that kind of area um, but also just yeah thinking about if someone came along picked up the phone and said Smith and Taylor designed me a Palladian mansion in Wiltshire I'm really interested to see what we do <laughs> I think we play it with a really straight bat and but we, we, we don't have the background or the training that someone like Francis Terry has and and the result would be different and um, and after doing a sort of series of you know, several years of projects with the students I some idea of what we'd do mm-hmm. um, I think it's quite hard isn't it to escape I think there's a buildings that kind of rarely escape the hand of their architect <laughs> that can be good or or bad but in the same way that they don't you can't really escape sort of you know the age you're you're working in you know and so I think I mean this is again a slightly different question but the the question of are you are you sort of working in a form that's appropriate to the the age in which you find yourself I think is slightly misses the point because I think you can't escape the age in which you find yourself and you know a classical building built in the 80s is probably quite recognisable as that mm-hmm. um, just as one built in the 18th century is recognisable as that they're all sort of working in the same idiom yeah, yeah. and actually thinking about thinking about your comment John of um, clients not minding really what architect they get you just have to look at big international competitions and you have you know, Caruso's Engine Gary Liebskind Zaha I mean yeah if if you if you perhaps take the classicist point of view, you say, oh well, these were all late, late, late modernists or something. Um, but if you take our view, there are five or six very different architects, and maybe yeah, they'll all bring a certain kind of iconic nature, and that's all that's important to the city that's commissioning this concert hall or whatever it might be. But they're very different architects, and so I think the question. I think that's where there's an opportunity. The client for the Teddington folly certainly didn't come to us expecting to get two brick Doric columns um, and a building which looked a bit like a temple at the end of the garden. Uh, but you know, through a conversation with her, um, and she was a wonderful client, um, that's where we ended up. And we obviously had our aims and motivations and reasons for doing what we are doing. Um, and she was quite keen to avoid. You know, she she bought this quite small Victorian cottage, really, and what she liked was the sort of series of small rooms. And she was quite keen not to have, not to have room on the end of all that, which felt completely different. So obviously, at the moment, it feels like you're quite at, um, at odds with the prevalent culture, but at the same time. Your, your position's clearly grown out of um, an observation of 
an observational enthusiasm for the, for the work of some of the most kind of um, the acknowledged kind of radical architects of the day. Do you think in ten years' time there'll be there will be a cultural sea change that you know that, that you're you're part of a, a bigger movement towards a, a reconnection with um, with history? I think in the last few years there definitely has been. I think people are much more comfortable with architectural history, and I think it's almost entirely due to the architects that we mentioned before, people like Crusoe Sinjin and um, uh, Arun, maybe Sojin Bates, you know, people who are interested in buildings with walls with holes in them. <laughs> um, and I think there is a kind of increasing, there's an increasing expressiveness in, in architecture at the moment, you know. Um, so you think of maybe someone like David Cohen, yeah, he's maybe not not quoting directly from architectural history or or, for, or you know, very explicitly, but there's a a comfortableness with with making expressive forms and and using sort of um, sort of bold colours and things like that, which I think wasn't apparent maybe five or six years ago. So it feels like it feels as a there's a fashionable lean towards that sort of work. I don't know. What I don't know is how how much it will be, be sort of in, become entrenched in architectural culture, or if it is a sort of a passing fashion. I mean, even something like the King's Cross Central site. You know, uh, look at the kind of range of buildings mm. on that side. Yeah, and there's nothing there of a. Uh, floor-to-ceiling Foster-style no, no, office no. building. Everything is dealing with composition and, and mm. ornament to some extent, mm. and um, you know weight, and you know, they're, they're dealing with classical themes. Even if you know only you know in some buildings more more um, you know like Dimitri's obviously more explicitly than others, yes, but. but yeah. It isn't the case that you feel Dimitri's building is radically at odds with, um, say, the Chipperfield one or the the um, or the Neil McLaughlin one, or mm. Um, mm. you know, one does feel there's a sort of almost a consensus mm. has emerged there about what an urban architecture in in London might be, and it's not not a Norman Foster building. Yeah, yeah, I think that's. Um, so I'm intrigued as to where. You know how that can develop as a as a kind of as a mainstream sort of cultural um, development. Mm. Um. Yeah, and it's it's also we travel past uh, Battersea Power Station every other day or so on the way to Kingston, and there's work there which is sort of windows and walls, um, but very little proof that's any good. So yeah, I don't know. We we sort of. We, we like quite a lot of what's going on, the, the things Johnny mentions, colour, expressiveness. But somehow we yeah, do still feel slightly at odds with it, mm. feel like it's not, um, still not quite what we, mm. what we do. Um, well, it's easy to get, I think maybe, it, it might be easy to get dragged into a sort of a position where you can make a, a charming or an awkward thing by sort of picking a few a few expressive moments and then, you know, sort of any skillful articles to assemble them into kind of an attractive facade. Um, and, you know, that, that in and of itself is kind of, you know, has a benefit if you make it an attractive facade, then, of course, it's, it's a good thing. But I've, I feel that's not, I hope, <laughs> where we are. You know, we like, we, we like charming and attractive facades, but it feels like there has to be a bit more of a sort of thought through kind of order to it in a way mm-hmm. I think that's the that's, difference I mean, maybe with sort of the rigour of that I mean maybe we're just deluding ourselves maybe you know every architect imposes their own rules on themselves to generate the work they make so I mean and that's, <laughs> perhaps we're misreading yeah. the, the sorts yeah. of things we've got in mind yeah. but um, I think there's work around at the moment that looks to us perhaps like collage collage of um Quotations. Yep. yep. Whereas, um, whereas what we're looking for is 
is kind of building up of, 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 of an ordered building mm-hmm. and, 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 and from a kind of desire like the Robert Adam plan desire for that room and that room to be perfect in themselves it then prompts it prompts these unexpected spaces rather than those unexpected mm-hmm. spaces being Be something that you're starting point yeah exactly that's exactly it it's, it's quite actually quite, it's quite interesting in, in read a Gavin Stamp article in Modern Painters on McMorrin and Whitby and which quotes Donald McMorrin in 1960 as saying the worst contemporary architecture is worse than anything in human history <laughs> <laughs> and presumably in the architecture and human history uh, yeah. <laughs> and I'm not sure what it's any different it sort of feels like when you're you know, outside of e- even Battersea but outside, <laughs> certainly outside of King's Cross Central the worst contemporary architecture I feel now is worse than the worst in 1960 I think Ian Sinclair said that the um, first decades of the 21st century uh Produced architecture as bad as any since the retreat of the glaciers. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, where we'll be in ten years? I mean, in a way, I, I suppose when I'm feeling really pessimistic, I would hope that we're perhaps inching towards Craig Hamilton's world of look, you're not. We can't do anything in this area. We can't do anything. Um, in the area of the kinds of buildings that have a significant impact on a significant number of people, we want to do creative and interesting work, and the only place available is in the landscapes of the wealthy. And fine, that's where we'd end up. I mean, it's not fine, but you know, mm-hmm. we 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 could explore the things we're interested in architecturally. Um, and Craig's creating incredible, I think, cultural monuments. But you're you do with your students. You're making housing in Inverness. This yes. Year? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you could imagine making. Yeah. I mean, like clearly, it feels like housing is going to be the focus of the architectural discourse in the UK for some years to come. At the moment, in, in a way, it's, yes. it's not been for a long time. Yeah. 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 And that's where Maura Whitby did some fantastic yeah. work. Mm-hmm. You know, where where it really was on the, the margin of the classical language, but they're still using. They're master planning their forms of housing, which where gables are suggesting pediments and, and, and setting things into hillsides um, here in South London and, and up around Hampstead, and you know, just a simple arch to bring bring you through the building into a, a shared garden is is that moment of emotional um, legibility. I better let you go back and <laughs> teach some students. <laughs> Take it down to Kingston. <laughs> Thanks so much, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Register. Do remember to subscribe and leave comments and all of that kind of stuff. Um, it all helps. And I do hope you stick around and join us for our next uh, episode. Um, before signing off, I'd just like to, as usual, thank the other members of the Register team, uh, Matt Wells, Matt Phillips, Christoph Luder, and in particular, Laura Evans, who is responsible for this lecture series and podcast. See you soon.